Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Happy Monday and welcome to the Compliance Guy podcast. Uh, today, we are down several of our uh, cast members as they are traveling in different places and doing things that are much more fun than sitting around and just auditing a medical record. So it's just Paul Spencer and me today. Good morning, my friend. Good morning. All right. So today, you know, since we don't have the entire panel, what we thought we would do is have a discussion about how when a state Medicaid program uses a contractor and they make a determination that an overpayment exists based on faulty information or based on a failure to comply with their own published guidance. What does that look like? How do you handle it? And what can you expect as an outcome? So the issue that I'm talking about, um, I did post last week on LinkedIn about another win for the good guys. And I'm not saying Medicaid and AG's office and the contractors are bad people. I'm just saying we're the good people. <laughs> and, and again, I, you know, listen, in every Western, there's the white hat and the black hat if that's how you want to call it, right? So, um, long story short, I was approached by some good people uh, that I had done some work for in the past at a um, consulting group. And they said, listen, you know, we have clients that are receiving these demands for one was 36000 another one was for about $130,000. And we just think that the Medicaid carrier in the state is wrong. Um, they won't listen to us. And we've taken it as far as we can. What can you do? So Paul and I agreed to get onto a call with the first of the two clients, uh, which was a pulmonary group. And they're actually coming on to the podcast on Thursday this week, um, James Carlson and Dr. Merrick, who you'll hear what Dr. <laughs> Merrick did during... <laughs> during our discussion, um, which is not advisable. So, um, <laughs> Paul's laughing. So long story short, um, we got onto the call with them and we said, Hey, all right, you know, let's listen to the facts and, and let's hear your side of the story. And they happen to have some attorneys that were also on the call with us. And they asked us to join as, I don't know, consultants. And in listening to the first group, Pulmonary Associates, you know, they owed about $36,000. And the attorneys that were present said that it was going to cost them about $75,000 to argue a $36,000 case. Now, 
I may be from South Georgia, but I can do simple math. And I'm not going to put myself in a hole almost $40,000 to argue a case. Um, anyways, what is the case about? Well, there is a modifier referred to as the AI modifier. And I'm going to pause there and I'm going to let Paul kind of explain what the AI modifier is, how it's supposed to be used, where it's supposed to be used, who's supposed to use it, and then we'll pick it up from there. Okay. Well, before I explain the intricacies of the AI modifier, I want to rewind all the way back to the beginning of the process because I think the way that these services were reviewed, particularly in an automated setting where basically it's data mining whenever you're dealing with a rack automated review, was fatally flawed from the get-go. And then <laughs> using Colorado Medicaid or what they call the HCPF in Colorado and using their- They call their... it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who's your friend when things get rough? <laughs> but uh, uh, so- what what they do, you know, understand first that the Medicaid RAC program is only for traditional Medicaid claims. So we have the Medicaid RAC program is in a limited number of states because a number of states have gone to such a percentage of Medicaid managed care to the point where traditional Medicaid in those states just doesn't offer the type of a contingency fee that a RAC contractor would even be interested in. So there are just about two thirds of the states have no Medicaid RAC contractor. Well, Colorado has enough of a population in their Medicaid RAC program that they have a Medicaid RAC contractor who is HMS, which if you look at the states that have Medicaid RAC contractors, they are the prevailing Medicaid RAC contractor across the states that have them. So. What they do, and you know, and I know that many of our listeners know this, but set up from the demonstration project going back into the mid 2000 or the aughts, as we call them, uh, the way it was set up is a the federal government, or in this case, a state Medicaid agency, will take a list of issues uh, that they believe are uh, necessary for scrutiny they'll put these issues on an approved list for the Medicaid RAC contractors to put forward. There are two lists that are put forward. One is for automated review. And the way automated review is explained is that this is strict data mining. It looks for what they call low hanging fruit. So it would be duplicate claims. It would be claims after death. It would be uh, claims in a different place of service than the date of service where a patient was in the hospital or was in a nursing home or something of that nature. And the other are complex reviews, which take a little bit more of a look at medical necessity. I think the most famous complex review as far as the Medicare RAC program that caused heartache for a decade was observation versus inpatient status. So in this particular case, we have HMS, the Colorado RAC, and I will read the wording straight from the Medicaid RAC website that HMS has for uh, automated review. Uh, this, this issue is still on this list, but I don't expect it to be there for long without a number of clarifications. 
So the issue that was identified is called automated review of duplicate inpatient claims that paid more than once for the same service for the same member on the same date of service. Now, when you're talking about duplicate inpatient claims, there's one piece of information that's missing there. And the piece of information that's missing is same provider. So if the same provider is being paid twice for the same service, that I can understand. But to only restrict it, there's the first problem, is that you're restricting it to same service, same member, same date of service, where we know in the inpatient setting, when you're dealing with admitting physician and consultant, you can have the same CPT codes that are submitted. Now, this is where the AI modifier comes in. We all know that when consultations were eliminated on January 1st of 2010 by Medicare, after many years of attempting to explain uh, you know, uh, the three R's, request, review, and report, we were still dealing with a 43% error rate in some MAC jurisdictions for consultations. Medicare threw up their hands and said, we've explained this to death, we give up, we're not paying inpatient or outpatient consultations anymore. So the inpatient solution was newer, or the outpatient solution was newer established patient codes. The inpatient solution had to be a little bit more fine-tuned. What Medicare did was they added a modifier called AI. And AI stands for Principal Physician of Record, which means the admitting physician. It's either a hospitalist or, you know, perhaps in those hospitals where they don't have hospitalist programs, it was a patient's primary care provider or whoever had admitting privileges for that facility. The AI modifier would go on the initial inpatient claim for the admitting physician. Uh, so it would be, say, you have a level three uh, initial inpatient service, a 99223. The admitting physician would put an AI modifier on it to indicate he is the admitting physician and the person who's going to be coordinating care as that patient is going through their hospital course. For all other physicians, particularly consultants, and this is what we're talking about here with our pulmonary group in, uh, you know, pulmonary associates in Colorado, they would also bill the first time they saw the patient an initial inpatient visit uh, with the appropriate level of service, either 221, 222, or 223 to indicate the intensity of service. So the first problem that occurs is that uh, you know, again, I've got to go back to uh, my love of classic television and the television show Quincy. My wife gives me a lot of heat about it, uh, but, you know, it, and it was the campiest show I've ever, uh, you, you could ever possibly watch. But one thing that the main character did was they dug and dug and dug and got to the truth. So I started digging through the uh, Medicaid regulations in the state of Colorado. Uh and the first thing that I saw is that much like Medicare, as of April 1st, 2010, Colorado no longer accepted consultation codes for any providers in Medicaid. So the exact wording that they put forward in their manual said, please submit claims for consultation services using another evaluation and management code that most appropriately represents where the visit occurred and that identifies the complexity of the visit performed. 
That's right there in the Medicaid regulations. Now, what we learned from all of the MAC jurisdictions and what we learned from CMS guidance, remembering that CMS is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, we know that if you had an inpatient consultation and it was the first time that physician was seeing that patient, you build somewhere between 99221 and 99223 provided under the 95 guidelines you had that documentation to be able to get that otherwise you had to default to a subsequent hospital visit code uh, if you didn't have at least uh you know a uh you know it's uh you know it's some some type of uh detailed examination or detailed history so it was inpatient services that needed to be built. Now, one thing that was interesting is that I went to the current approved modifier list for Colorado Medicaid. And the first issue that we come across is that the AI modifier is not on the approved modifier list. You know, so, you know, basically we have no way to differentiate who is the admitting physician in this scenario. Well, Colorado Medicaid's solution to that was to just deny everything that was billed as an initial inpatient visit after the first claim was received. And they they dug in their heels when we met with them, uh, attempting to explain this inconsistency that initial inpatient uh, E&M codes were only for the admitting physician and no one else could use them. Well, that flies in the face of CMS guidance uh, uh, going back now 14 years. Uh, so we didn't find the AI modifier in their approved modifier list. And this is where I bring Sean in because there is a claims processing guide for Colorado Medicaid claims where we found a reference or Sean found a reference to the AI modifier being acceptable for inpatient or, or for uh, rather for observation care codes, which we found to be very interesting. So you're recognizing it here, but you're not recognizing it there. That tells me that the AI modifier would pass muster on claim processing if you submitted an AI modifier on the admitting physician, and then all other services should go through. Well, they were still basically denying all of those specialist care initial inpatient services for every single specialist that saw that patient in the inpatient setting. Uh, for our one client, it was $36,000. We had another gastroenterological client where the determination of overpayment was uh, many degrees higher than that. Uh, so, you know, uh, what, it, what it took was some research. It took pointing out that even though the AI modifier was not on their approved list, they certainly accepted it for other services. And that the way they had worded and the way they had structured this particular automated review issue for their Colorado Medicaid rack was fatally flawed and they needed to uh, reverse course. And suddenly, I think I'll let Sean take up the uh, story of the email you know, that I first saw at 9.30 p.m. this past Thursday from uh, James Carlson from Pulmonary Associates and what happened subsequently. 
Yeah. So, you know, a couple of things that I'll talk about, and, and, and I want to be really clear. Um, you know, the AG's office, the attorney general in the state of Colorado was caught between a rock and a hard place. When we started the process back in 2023, the deputy assistant AG um, and I, she, she and I had built and forged a, a very strong um, working relationship. Uh, and I dare say we actually kind of found a friendship in there um, <clears throat> because we always started off asking how each other's family was doing and how's life and, you know, how's the weather and what's going on. And I mean, it was, it was truly genuine, you know, conversation. And every time she and I spoke on the phone, it was a wonderful conversation. And, you know, she did say to me at one point, listen, you know, my job is to represent the state and their contractors. And, you know, while I understand your point and I, I, I can clearly see where you're going, I've got to give them an opportunity to investigate, to respond. It's not something that we're going to be able to get through in 30 days. You know, we, you know, need to do what's necessary to make sure that the judge in this case, who's being assigned to it, understands that we're going to have an informal settlement discussion. We're going to take, you know, certain steps to try to resolve this before it turns to litigation. <clears throat> and we played ball. Um, the initial um, trove of information that we sent to the AG's office was significant. Um, it was substantial information. It was information not only from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, it was from the American Medical Association. It was from specialty associations. I mean, it was authoritative information. Um, there was a lot of radio silence as HMS and HICPUF were trying to sort through everything that we had provided them. Unfortunately, as things happen in the government, our contact about halfway through the process, maybe three quarters of the way through the process, departed. And I was highly concerned, and I think for good reason, because individuals were being now assigned to the case that I had no relationship with. Um, and I had to begin building the process all over again. Unfortunately, um, I was never able to build the same kind of relationship, but there were enough pleasantries. There was enough good open dialogue between us and a willingness on the part of the assistant um, deputy AG <clears throat> to engage in meaningful dialogue with us. But it was kept, you know, uh, strictly to the information that we were calling into question. Um, as we progressed and I felt like we really weren't getting anywhere because she was pushing back with nonsensical information, um, my demeanor changed a little bit and I began to push back a little more forcefully. Um, fast forward to the first of our um, informal discussion, uh, informal settlement discussion conferences. And that's what they call them in the state of Colorado. So they had members from HICPUF. They had members from the AG's office. They had members from HMS and probably a couple of other groups that were joining the call. Um, we were granted an opportunity to present our information, which I think we did. And 
um, it was interesting out of the gate that the individual who we were working with said, listen, I know nothing about healthcare. I don't understand it. I'm learning as I go. And as I was presenting information, the feedback was, well, that that's not how I understand it. Well, you basically told me at the beginning of the call, you don't understand healthcare. So I don't expect you to understand it. Trust in what is being shown to you as authoritative information. Now, prior to the call starting, I had given what I consider to be very sound advice to our client. Mute your phone. No matter how upset, aggravated, irritated, or disappointed you get, do not react. Well, <laughs> they, they, they behaved themselves for a little while, and I'll let Dr. Merrick speak for himself on Thursday. But they did, they did a very good job. They held their tongue for about 50 minutes. <clears throat> well, at the 50-minute mark, an interesting <laughs> enemy is what I'll refer to the person as, decided to chime in and wanted to peacock. And he decided that he was going to make known exactly who he was and that if I was unwilling to settle and my client was unwilling to pay anything back. Then there's nothing further to discuss. And I almost wish that we would have ended the call there because the outcome would have resulted in the same smackdown that I think this individual got anyways from the AG's office and from his internal superiors. Um, after his little rant as a petulant child, Dr. Merrick and a couple of the other doctors, I think, had enough. And Dr. Merrick unmuted himself and let loose. Gave him the business, as we like to refer to it. <laughs> and then as Dr. Merrick got up from the room, he made sure that they all realized that they were number one in his book. <laughs> and as he walked out the door, another physician got up and walked out the door, which led to this individual having a complete meltdown once again. Um, I just, I, I don't want to say too much cause I don't want to just have people feel like I'm trashing this person. But when I tell you that this person behaved like a petulant child, I think that's a very fair assessment. <clears throat> so we concluded the call. I shared with the people that were left on the call that I would be submitting more documents, more information, and we would continue to negotiate in good faith with them because I don't think litigation was beneficial to them, to the taxpayers of the state of Colorado or to our client. Fast forward. My client had indicated to me. Now my gastro client indicated, listen, if you can get this thing down under a hundred thousand dollars, I don't want to litigate. I'm just willing to pay. I said, okay. Wasn't happy about it because I know that we were in the right, but they don't want to litigate. So I got to kind of do what I can do. <clears throat> My pulmonary client basically what was not happy with having to settle, but I, I think we made an initial offer. Now, what's interesting about this is within 30 minutes of making our settlement offer, something just wasn't sitting right with me. You, you know, it's one of those six senses. And I said, I'm missing something. 
I don't know how I'm missing it, but I'm missing something. And as I normally am, I'm a dog with a bone. So I decided to dig and dig and dig and dig. And I continued to dig until I finally found the exact year buried about 100 pages deep on the state of Medicaid, uh, state of Colorado Medicaid website. And I tracked down the AI modifier that was actually in the observation admission section. And what I submitted to the AG's office was something that said the admitting physician is required or must append the AI modifier. Now, remember what Paul said just a few moments ago. They did not have the AI modifier listed on their recognized modifier list. Well, how can you use language that says you are required or you must append a modifier if you don't recognize it? Now, I will say this, and Paul can confirm this. During our call, when our little petulant child friend spoke up, my response to them was, I understand you're upset. I understand this is a very difficult, big pill that you guys are going to have to choke down. Those were my exact words. You're going to have to choke this pill down. And you're going to have to realize that you had a faulty algorithm in your system and that you failed to recognize a modifier that is a generally accepted standard in the industry. They kept pushing back and saying, well, that's Medicare. This is Medicaid. And I kept saying to him, this was published by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Well, we only have to follow, we don't have to follow Medicare. I said, you're right, you don't. But when your own manual says, we are following Medicare guidance for the purposes of continuity, you have to follow them. You can't simply say, I'm going to follow Medicare for this part of it. But for the rest of it, because it doesn't benefit us, we're not going to follow it. We're going to make up our own rules as we go along, which is what they did. So fast forward to the end. Um, I had submitted settlement offers for my clients on both sides, the gastro and the pulmonary group. <clears throat> I found this document buried deep. So I sent it to another attorney who, by the way, this guy was fantastic. He was. He was professional. He was responsive up until I sent him my last email. But now we know why he stopped responding. Um, and he was and he was very open and, and very cerebral in his thought process, because as I presented things to him, he countered with, OK, but what about this? And then I countered with it doesn't matter because you can admit a patient from an observation unit an ER, a direct admit from the physician's office, or straight from a, an outpatient surgery setting. It doesn't matter. It's an admission. But beyond that, put all of that aside. It says you are required or you must use the AI modifier. Right there, you guys failed to follow your own guidance. So everything else doesn't matter because you guys screwed up. So after I responded to the last email with this really good, nice guy, um, 
there was radio silence for two weeks. <clears throat> and my client kept reaching out and saying, what do we do? What do we do? And I'm like, just be patient. I don't want to poke the bear. I think they finally realized they got a problem. Well, in the meantime, my client on the pulmonary side decided we're going to check with our insurance company and see if we have coverage for litigation. And they did. And they went and hired an attorney. The day after they hired the attorney, because they were going to litigate, we get an email in the evening from James Carlson that says, did they fold? And the email was actually a concession put out from the state, uh, well, from the state society. So let me be clear on that. That they received word that all open pending cases were going to be closed by the state of Colorado and that they were going to fix their issues. They were going to recognize the AI modifier. They were going to do all these other things, blah, 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 blah. Now, I am grateful that the state was involved, uh, the state associations. I'm grateful that others were involved. Um, I am taking full credit with Paul Spencer <laughs> for this win. I am. I, I don't care what anybody says. We are taking full credit. There's no I and we. So let me rephrase that. We are taking full credit for this win. And I know some of you are rolling your eyes and you're going, come on, Sean, stop. No, we are. And here's the reason why. Had others been negotiating prior to us, I don't think the conversations and the education that we had to provide to all of those on the phone would have been necessary. I think they would have already known all of that. And besides, I actually had a couple of attorneys that reached out to me and they're like, where did you find this AI stuff? Well, I found it. It's all that matters. So while, while it was a concerted effort and there were a lot of folks involved, we, you know, I think back to the Top Gun scene where, you know, they had the run-in and they went inverted with the Russian MiG and Maverick says, you know, I came in, broke through the clouds at blah, blah, blah. And Goose says, we. And Maverick looks at him and says, we. So <laughs> Paul is my goose. And we, we I think, did what we set out to do, yeah. which was <laughs> to close this matter. Yeah. Was Kobe Bryant once said, you know, there's no I in team, but there's a me in there somewhere. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Let his let his good soul rest in peace. <laughs> Taken way too soon, like so many of the good yeah. ones. Um, but our purpose behind doing this podcast today was to make certain that we are helping all of you to understand that. Just because you receive a letter from a contractor stating that you did things wrong doesn't necessarily mean that you did. And it doesn't mean that you should cough up a bunch of money just to close the issue. What it means is you need to take a deeper dive. You need to look at it closer. You need to make certain that it's not them, not they who made the mistake. And that's what we were able to do. 
And, you know, some of you may be wondering, well, how much did it really cost your clients? Because you said the attorneys wanted 75000 We were able to handle this matter for just under $5,000. And one matter and the other just under 6000 And we're talking one was $36,000 demand and the other one was $130,000 demand. So I think our clients were extremely pleased and extremely happy with the outcomes. That's the kind of work that we do at Doctors Management. And again, we're physician advocates. We advocate for those who don't have a voice to advocate for themselves. All right, so let me pause there and let me ask Paul, is there anything that I omitted? Did I miss anything? I, th I think that captured the spirit of it, but okay. uh, it's important. I want to just add this last postscript. You know, the very beginning of my career in this industry and, you know, Let's uh, face it, 23-year-old me was not looking for a career in this industry in 1989 uh, when I was hired on the uh, advice of an old friend to uh, apply at an insurance company that was right around the block from where I was living at the time in Pennsylvania. Uh, and I ended up spending six years on the insurance side of the industry. Uh, and one thing that really jumped out at me was that in many cases, when you're dealing with an insurance company denial, whether it's uh, at the time the claim is first submitted or whether it's after the fact, uh, a lot of those denials are basically generated without meaningful human intervention. And by that, I mean a lot of it is, is programmed based on uh, the type of plan uh, that is has been written for that particular employer. It, you know, on the government side, it's written very narrowly to fit LCD or NCD guidelines. On the Medicaid side, maybe you have data collection on the front end uh, when there's claim billing, but most of the time, uh, the uh, Medicaid fraud control units and the Medicaid racks are chasing it retroactively because they, with the, the constant flux that you have with that particular population, it's very hard to stay on top of uh, claim information when we deal with the Medicaid level. Uh, your first instinct, whenever you get any type of claim denial or any type of retroactive claim denial that has been based on an audit of some kind, whether it's an automated audit or a complex review, is to immediately question and fight that audit determination. Because really, they're just dealing with a very limited set of parameters when they're going to deal with when they're going to deny those services. And they're not really looking at the full clinical picture until someone explains it to them. Uh, it's the same information and it's the same mindset you should use whenever you're doing a peer-to-peer -peer review as well when you're challenging a denial because it's the first time where two medical professionals can sit face-to-face -face and say, this is not a typical case. This is exactly why we have recommended these particular procedures or services for this patient and based on their unique history and unique physiology. Uh, we talk all the time on this show about clinical summaries when you're dealing with denials and appeals. All of this information that we're sharing with you 
we share because at one step or another it works and when we uh you know when we uh encounter uh interference or uh you know uh, uh the typical red tape of uh, governmental response or the the ben stein in ferris bueller's day off type of recitation of facts that we tend to get uh, whenever we do uh, an appeal of this type. And we certainly got a lot of that on the call with Hickpuff. Uh, you know, we fight back and we talk about, uh, you know, it, exactly how these services should be considered from the very beginning. And if that doesn't work, we go into the medical portion of it, you know, with clinical summaries to explain exactly what care this patient provided, why it was medically necessary, and why it followed generally accepted standards of, standards of medical practice as determined by the physician per CMS guidelines. Uh, you know, so just, you know, to, I hate the term the cost of doing business. There is no cost of doing business. The cost of doing business is when you let these things slide and you don't fight. I don't believe we can hear you, Sean. Well, and I was well into it. <laughs> I muted myself, which is unusual. All right. So that's gonna that was well said, Paul. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up here. As always, I want to say thank you so much for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with us for just a little while today. That's going to conclude this Monday episode on February 12th, 2024. I want to thank my good friend, Goose, Paul Spencer, for taking time out of his busy schedule today because I know he has a lot going on. Um, I'm going to be back tomorrow with a hashtag Terry episode. I'm looking forward to that because we're going to be talking about some obscure aspects of the health insurance portability and accountability um, uh, law. And then uh, later this week, I'll be joined by uh, John Carlson, uh, uh, James Carlson and Dr. Merrick of Pulmonary Associates to further discuss this case from a client perspective. So until then, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.